Hey Evangelos, my name is Jamal Robinson and I am the Chief Executive Officer of Foster Youth Impact, a social justice nonprofit on the frontier of social innovation, working to improve outcomes for youth in the New York City foster care system, from mental health to housing and employment opportunity to uh, social entrepreneurship. Um, this is our work. Our work is to disrupt the status quo, to innovate opportunities that engender a safe, smooth, and healthy transition from foster care to a life of hope and possibility for New York City foster youth. So thank you for the opportunity to share with you. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Jamel, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. So really a pleasure and an honor. We've spoken before and I was actually looking forward to this discussion. Um, so your entire professional career so far has been in public service and you've uh, focused the last few years, uh, particularly on Foster Youth Impact Inc, which is the organization which you founded. So what made you decide to follow this path of public service? Thank you, Evangelos. So I grew up in the child welfare system here in the city of New York, born to a mom who struggled with substance use and my father who had some interaction with the criminal justice system. Um, and unfortunately at the time of my birth, I was conceived with uh, drugs and alcohol in my system. And as a consequence of uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, experience, I was put in the New York City foster care system through kinship care, uh, where a relative uh, who uh, is in the position to uh, provide care for the young person would provide uh, that care um, to the best of their ability, uh, with obviously with the support um, of the system. So for me uh, that, and my sister that looked like my grandmother who had eight boys and two girls of her own who done the best she could in raising us up to a certain point uh, was willing to take uh, me and my sister in and, and, and do her best. Unfortunately for that, um, it lasted for a considerable amount of time until unfortunately due to uh, going back and forth and trying to adopt us and, you know, uh, the, the Herculean task of going through an enormous degree of paperwork uh, to try to keep our family together. She became overwhelmed in the process. Um, and that uh, stress led to her uh, having a nervous breakdown that progressively gotten worse uh, in which my happy home became unstable. And so as a consequence of that experience growing up in the foster care system and a litany of other experiences that came thereafter. A part what, was, of my, what was the excuse for them not allowing your grandmother to fully adopt you? So the process was going back and forth to court um, to try to uh, go through with the adoption. The challenge with that process was she had eight 
uh, eight boys, two girls of her own. So she had 10 children uh, in the household that she was uh, working to provide, uh, you know, care for. And as with anything, you know, if you are a, the primary caregiver and, you know, the stress of, you know, managing or trying to keep your entire family together and going back and forth to court. Sometimes the bureaucracy and the hierarchy associated with uh, a system that for many people, particularly black and brown people who have in many ways have been adversarial, right? And the idea that um, individuals who are taken from their biological parents, there must be something wrong, right? So there's an inherent bias associated with this type um, of uh, uh, investigatory process that kind of leads to some uh, delay in some of the, uh, the, pro the structural processes in trying to adopt and keep families together. Mm -hmm. And I think that going back and forth, uh, trying to you know, submit paperwork on this and submit paperwork on that. I think that that, that process became cumbersome and in becoming overwhelmed, my, you know, she, my grandmother, unfortunately, experienced a decline with regard to um, emotional health. And I think that um, rightfully so. You think about it in this context. Here it is. You're trying to keep your, you know, your biological family together, taking, you know, your grandchildren and provide the best care. But sometimes going through that, that system for a system like I mentioned earlier, moments ago that is unfamiliar to you, uh, and without the adequate support, can become. Uh, a bit overwhelming. And so for her, she vented in court, um, in family court. Um, I was approximately 15 years of age. And from that moment of venting, um, it just became a, a really uh, a decline with regard to um, her ability to provide uh, the, the adequate care and advocacy that for so many years uh, through her nurture. Uh, of myself and my sister, that she just didn't really have the uh, the ability, I, I wouldn't say the ability, but the wherewithal, right, um, to kind of continue to advocate. And so at that particular time, that um, my once, you know, happy home, right, in many ways became a bit dysfunctional. And as a consequence, the city uh, was, you know, uh, trying to identify new places uh, for me to reside. Can you be more specifically about uh, about what it, what it means that quote the your happy home became dysfunctional? What was the transition that took place, and how did that affect you personally? Sure. Well, I grew up with a grandmother who was nurturing, who was loving, who um, we did. You know, we had an extraordinary relationship. We spent enormous time together. Uh, whether be it shopping, grocery shopping, whether it be, um, you know, running errands, whether it be me going to her in the home and sharing about whatever may be going on, but be it in the community, uh, in my liaison work uh, with a civic association, no matter what the circumstances were, I would 
always be able to go to her and to share about some of the proclivities that I may have been experiencing at that time. And just unfortunately, just due um, to the emotional stress uh, and the daily stresses associated with, you know, a bureaucracy of a system. Um, I just think that that kind of eroded one, her trust in the, her, in the system. And then two, I just believe that um, it had collateral consequences to which I experienced at an enormous course cost um, with respect to trauma um, that really was a result of a failed and flawed system that did not provide enough support to her. And yes. so while my home was once happy and the times that I could remember were great, that the challenge really there was that I was starting to experience difficulties in a home that was unfamiliar to me, right? Was foreign mm -hmm. to me. And, you know, it just was, it became at a time where that, living situation was untenable. Um, and it just was unhealthy as I was beginning to matriculate into greater maturity with respect to age and not just age, but, you know, development, uh, yeah. human development. Um, and so this is certainly not an indictment on my grandmother who done the best she could, um, but really an indictment on a flawed system that does not provide enough uh, support for those who are doing their best to keep their families together. So that was at the age of 15. What happened then? So the, at the age of 15, I was, uh, you know, going back and forth, obviously, to court, trying to become adopted. But my grandmother had this uh, viewpoint, uh, which I certainly subscribe to, that in all that she could do growing up in South Jamaica, Queens, the neighborhood notorious once for drugs, crime, uh, at some point prostitution, murders. I grew up in a community called Bricktown. Mm -hmm. It was a subset of South Jamaica, Queens, a little area, um, a little community in which really was a real low income community. It was considered middle class class, but really the people within that community did not have the resources or the outlets, whether it be social capital with regard to access to, you know, adequate recreation or other, you know, activities that will kind of facilitate a well-roundedness for a young person. But my grandmother had this um, idea that even within our community, that there was something else that I certainly can contribute to, that it was something that I could do. So she got me involved in local politics. And in those local politics, I was able to obviously lead um, in many different you know, aspects. Uh, one being a liaison of a Black association, um, which really was um, a formative experience for me because it allowed me to develop social capital for which was absentee uh, prior um, in my development. And so I was able to work with the community. I did some community organizing. I eventually uh, worked myself up and, um, you know, there was um, an opportunity to become the vice president of the Black, the Black Association. And so all of these different opportunities from working with politicians to 
civic engagement. My grandmother, in some sense of the way, had helped facilitate those opportunities by connecting me with mentors and connecting me with individuals within the community that can help keep me grounded. At 15 years of age, I entered um, the newspaper for the first time uh, around my community organizing. And so from 15 years of age, um, you know, community organizing, my life right ahead of me, I was doing well until my grandmother started to experience some traumatic experiences that for me um, was a bit uh, difficult, um, difficult to accept and to receive, to understand, to cope with, um, and certainly to heal from. So from 15 years of age, I started to encounter a community that for me, I have I've in some many ways been sheltered from through my civic engagement. So um, I wind up experiencing interactions with the criminal justice system. And so from 15 years of age, I wind up you know, going back and forth in short stints at Rikers Island. Um, and from spending time on Rikers Island, I wind up uh, at 15 years of age. Um, by 17 years of age, I was facing incarceration on Rikers Island um, for a year in which I spent a city year. And upon transitioning from there, um, I became homeless um, and slept on trains and buses for a short period of time. Um, and so my life just began to kind of have this uh, spiral. And if I back up a bit, I will share an experience around the age of 15 when I uh, experienced sexual abuse as a result of at the hands of a teacher. Um, and so here it is, I'm 15 years of age, I'm dealing with um, some uh, dysfunctionality at my home uh, in you know my living arrangement. And here it is, my only outlet for me at that time that I felt com obviously comfortable with was, you know, my interaction with the criminal justice system by way of, for me, it was, you know, riding in, in stolen property, right? I was driving in a stolen car. Uh, I knew the car was stolen, uh, but I wasn't a thief. So, you know, I reconciled it as, you know what, this is fun. This is a moment in time. Um, I'm living in this moment. Um, and, you know, it took me some time to unpack it, but that was kind of my framing. And for me, while it may appear to be, you know, unconscionable for others to believe that the spending time incarcerated on Rikers Island um, could in some sense of the way be helpful. For me, it was. Um, I, I often credit that experience, though traumatic and though, you know, heartbreaking and though unfortunate um, as relate to how I arrived in this condition, it was the best position for me. No, did I think I was gonna die or get caught out in the streets? No, but what I can tell you is, do I think that my life was off the beating path? Do I do, do I think that uh, I could have experienced this much more um, traumatic experiences had not I had a pause? And that's what Rikers Island unfortunately did for me is that I had so much dysfunctional dysfunction 
in my life at a particular time that my only outlet and, and my only source of peace at that particular time, really, for me, as I've resolved it in my head, was Rikers Island. It gave me a pause, and if nothing more, it allowed me to reset my life. Can you be more specific about exactly that? Like, how, how is it possible that most people that uh, end up on uh, in jail, uh, they say that it was basically education for a, a life in crime, right? It's like almost like doing uh, your bachelor's in uh, in uh, in being a criminal. And you're you're saying the complete opposite. You you were actually not only rehabilitated, but your your psyche transformed. Uh, can you be more specific as to how that happened? Um, you mentioned pause. What what exactly? How is it? You know. Be more specific. How do we come to that point? Good question. Here's the thing. Uh, with anyone's life, we go through a myriad of challenges that allow us to discover aspects of who we are, um, but not just who we are, but our needs. And those needs are individual based upon how we are reared, uh, the level of structure we had, what our needs require. And for me, because in so many ways, I was experiencing dysfunction in terms of transition um, in my life, not just from my living arrangement with my biological, with my maternal grandmother, but all of the other challenges that I was experiencing with regard to uh, the sexual abuse that uh, occurred at the hands of a teacher. I was already dealing with a myriad of different challenges emotionally uh -huh. um, and physically that I needed a pause. I just needed a reprieve. And for me, I was not finding that um, through my outreach. I wasn't finding that through my advocacy. I wasn't finding that through going uh, into another foster boarding home. And so I was at a place that I was in search of peace, meaning stability. And in whatever form that stability provided, um, I was willing to accept, even if it was temporary. And that stability being incarcerated on Rikers Island, though painful, again, I can um, certainly empathize and sympathize with some of the experiences that individuals who have been incarcerated uh, have experienced. But for me, as with anyone, our experiences is going to be nuanced and, and uh uh, calibrated based upon our individual needs and where we are at that need at that time I needed stability I needed to slow down yeah. I needed to stop I needed to recalibrate and to recenter and being um, in that particular position though though I can painful painful in the sense that with anything, you know, the, the conditions that is on Rikers Island currently today, be it as deplorable as they are and heart-wrenching, it was worse then uh, than it is now. Um, it, it has become more pronounced because of media, but I want to submit to you, when you have nothing left and you want to eat, 
and all you got is a hope and hardly prayer, but hope. Because uh, prayer is established through a relationship, mm -hmm. through a relationship. And oftentimes our struggle produces a relationship with faith to lean on something higher than us. I did not have the, the facility to be able to, uh, to, to lean on that degree of faith at that time. But what I did have was hope. Mm -hmm. I always knew that I would be great, but I knew that I was experiencing a meantime experience. And although I felt I was in a Eurachlodon, Eurachlodon is a tsunami, um, it, although I felt that I was in a tsunami, I felt that amidst all that I had experienced thus far, this was the opportunity to allow me to stop, regain my focus, and recalibrate. Um, and it was a very unique experience as I could I, look, I recommend it for no one. <laughs> but for me, that was a need because for me, I was on a path um, that was very interesting. I would literally uh, be arrested one day uh, and I was kind of numb to the experience. Um, I was kind of numb. And all I was trying to identify was an outlet that can bring me joy. <laughs> and so joy riding in a stolen vehicle didn't necessarily, the, the idea that it was stolen didn't compute. The idea was that I, I had an outlet that would help me escape my pain. And, and this was the tool by which I, elected to use and so but during that process with any process you look at decisions that you have made that you look back at, uh and say you know if that went that way I could have wound up this way mm -hmm. I mean case in point I could think about one day I was under the influence and I share this openly I was under the influence of marijuana because I was struggling I was never a big drinker but I was under the influence of marijuana because a part of my experience was trying to numb something that I was trying to get a handle on. Mm -hmm. And that was pain. And I just wanted to escape it so bad, eventually. I just, I just wanted to escape it. Um, and for me, um at the time that provided a degree of stability if nothing more in my life did you uh was it the fraternity of the of the prison uh other inmates or was it the structure or was it the day-to-day -day routine that you had to go through was it them forcing you to do certain things whereas otherwise before you lacked that structure, you were not forced to do it. And you, you were not disciplined. Uh, was it programs in prison, you feel, that uh, allowed you to put your life back together? What was it exactly? What were the, the primary elements of that transition that allowed sure. that transition? Sure. So 
a retrospective lens. Self-reflection allowed me to do it. Self-reflection allowed me to recalibrate. Um, it wasn't the programs, it wasn't the environment, it wasn't the inmates. Um, though in part, it was the inmates. Um, one, I will say, it was really because I needed to self-reflect. I needed to have a moment to kind of revisit some of the experiences that I had endured to understand not only who I was, but who I was becoming. And I never thought that pre, uh, being incarcerated uh, was the sole answer, but I do believe that it allowed for me the a measure of discipline for which I had never experienced in my entire life. And though I felt at, in at times it was intrusive, I also felt that at times there was some structure that, for which I needed um, that I did not have uh, because of the absence of my biological parents. And while my grandmother did hold me accountable, there was a different level of accountability, um, perhaps that she um, assessed um, to my development, perhaps particularly because for her, she probably was considering the fact that uh, I am not with my biological parents and that she does want to, in some sense of the way, uh, be an outlet for me. And a part of being an outlet is allowing me to explore and to express. And I think that that, for me, um, is what uh, really uh, was meaningful, I, I think. And it had its role and so, but I think that on the flip side of that, the time in spending on Rikers Island, I believe that that for me was a very self-reflective moment because that was a time that I started to reflect on some of the things that, you know, I began to realize that was so troubling with not just the in existing infrastructure, infrastructure of Rikers Island, but just on, on a more broader level in terms of, you know, there are some social economic determinants that, and house determinants that kind of, um, kind of effectuated my outcome. You know, uh, it, it, it in many ways kind of produced who I would to, was to become, the conditions within the community. So a part of that allowed me to kind of think because of what was instilled in me through my grandmother connecting me to mentors, I started to do, begin to become a more alert with regard to, you know, the more social um, and social uh dynamics so, uh, related uh, to um, how individuals arrive at Rikers Island, how does that experience, you know, begin to, you know, 
uh, follow them throughout their daily you know, lives. So a part of all of that was kind of unpacking for me. And so that's, that's what I would say. It was really unpacking. It was really trying to understand, you know, uh, and, you know, my, myself, but also, you know, how many, what does this look like for other people? And, and just realizing that I, I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens, you know, I, yeah, and South Jamaica, Queens has extremities, like with any city and any neighborhood. Um, so you, you have some good parts and you have some bad parts. But I, I started to understand why people don't leave their local community. I, I started to understand why uh, people are confined to this idea that, you know, they, they, there's nothing else. This is, you know, right. and so... A part of that tried, a part of that informed my thinking, for which helped allow, which helped facilitate some of my advocacy to this day. For which, if I had not been incarcerated, I think about all the other gifts from spirituality and how I, you know, exp you know, embrace my, you know, relationship with God. For you know, so I think that although we can look at, at the uh, horrific. Uh, contributions that the criminal justice system can uh, assess to an individual's life. For me, in that moment, I was looking at what I consider at this time, personal accountability, which is personal justice. Mm -hmm. Jamel, you're in this moment at this particular time, you can't control it. But what can you control? What part of the healing can you control? And that is access to personal justice. So personal justice allowed me to look introspectively. Oftentimes we look at justice in the context of the criminal justice system, the family court system and or reparations. But I look at uh, personal justice in the sense of what is the justice that you can give yourself? And in that moment, while I was incarcerated on Rikers Island, the justice that I gave me was self-reflection. It allowed me to see where I was flawed, the flaws in the system and work to use my lived experience complemented by my ability to pay it forward, provide in some sense of the way, not just healing for me, but healing for others. And that is personal justice. It's personal accountability. It is personal responsibility. It is taking uh, the pieces that you have left to help you in your process of discovering that you're worthy, that you have something to contribute, that you're deserving, that allows and summonses that something more. And that something more is the acceptance of personal justice sounds like a very emotional uh you're getting very emotional about this uh it was probably the fact that it was such a transformative period for you um but you ended up in college after that what was the i mean when did you did you end up in college uh, at the age of 18 right after Riker, rikers can you describe the journey that led you to to college? Sure. So it is a bit um, moving because I think about so many young people who struggle with the idea 
of identity. How do I, who, who, who am I? Am I really abandoned? Am I really neglected? Am I really? So they're unpacking the litany of uh, diagnosis or litany of uh, stereotypes or uh, a myriad of trauma that is hard to kind of facilitate through the process of understanding, oh, this could be transformative. Uh, how could this be? How could a, a very bad situation be so transformative? It's really about what was uh, imparted earlier. It is about what the deposit was earlier. It was about the mentorship that may have been present earlier that helped facilitate the thought process. So every young person is not going to experience the same uh, sort of, ex uh, not only um, life experiences, but they're not going to experience the same perspective because our perspectives are often reared by the relationships and the social capital uh, for which we have. Um, but for me, 15 years old, I wound up, uh, my grandmother started to experience some uh, emotional health challenges. And from there, I wound up uh, uh, experiencing, uh, uh, encountering the law uh, at exponential rates. And uh, from there, I wound up becoming incarcerated. I was on Rikers Island for about uh, a year, a city year which is a considerably eight months. And I wind up from there after coming out of uh, spending time on Rikers, I was uh, homeless and I wind up sleeping on trains and buses for a short period of time. Um, and uh, that was a bit traumatic. Um, and so from there, I wind up, um, a, a, a friend, uh, was willing to take me in, an associate of mine at the time who later became a friend and like a brother to me, uh, took me in and gave me the opportunity to rush for a year. Um, and, in the and in that time, I was able to pick up the broken pieces of my life and move forward. But I want to say that um, that was seven, so from 17, I want to say 18 and a half, maybe 19 and 20 and 20 and a half was a blur because I was transitioning from foster home to foster home between those times, one more dysfunctional than the next. But I think that that stability allowed me to pick up the broken pieces of my life mm -hmm. uh, and helped me to develop um, some agency and I started to begin to advocate so about 20 and a half six months shy of my 21st birthday I learned all that was available to me the opportunity to go to college the opportunity to secure adequate housing the opportunity uh, to uh, be become employed all of these things were important to me um, but I didn't know about it earlier and if I did it surely escaped me uh, through the trauma that I was experiencing that I could not even <laughs> pay attention to it. Um, and nonetheless, that I care to pay attention to it. I was struggling and I was in a deep place. Um, and it felt like I said before, I get rocked down, a tsunami. Yeah. And I, for me, was trying to, in some sense of the way, whichever which way it came, find peace. And peace for me was stability uh, in whatever form it was to come. 20 and a half, I, outside of New York City Children's Services, October 6, 2008, 
I launched this initiative called the Jamel Robinson Child Welfare Relook Form Initiative. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was a list of seven recommendations on how the city can improve the service delivery to youth in foster care. And as time went, go- went on, as I started to realize that the policy recommendations that I had recommended three years prior was not being acted upon, was not being taken seriously, I launched uh, an organization. So uh, the Jamel Robinson Child Welfare Reform Initiative culminated into an organization. Our early work began in the area of civic engagement, moved forward uh, to uh, criminal justice rehabilitation efforts. And then we did um, some work around uh, foster parent and adoption recruitment uh, through our campaign, the first of its kind. We deserve love too, which was to raise awareness to the need for good foster and adoptive parent, uh, families for teens in foster care. Um, that work was good work, um, but I knew that my work was going to take on another direction. I did not know quite what it was, but for me, I leaned on my faith because at that time, through my experience in the criminal justice system, it had helped me develop an a more in-depth degree of faith. And I relied on my faith heavily and my relationship with God that I was able to uh, nurture there um, to help me reconcile with what my uh, purpose would be in and for which I've come to learn is a part of my purpose, uh, which is to continue to advocate for youth in the New York City foster care system. So as I discovered that purpose and things became more clear, while it did not uh, become clear while I was incarcerated, it became more clear as I was more rehabilitated. And in the rehabilitation process, I was able to discover that while there was pain resident, there was also hope there. And so through launching this initiative to improve outcome for youth and the child welfare system, I was able to discover my voice. And in discovering my voice, I wanted to position my voice in a way that helped um, me not just unpack the trauma of my past, but help me contribute in a more whole way uh, to youth in foster care. And a part of that was my education. I went on I dropped out of high school in the ninth grade, as I shared, as I did not share earlier, but I will share now as a consequence of sexual abuse uh, uh, as a result uh, at the hands of a teacher, um, a New York City public school teacher um, for whom I trusted and my family trusted. Um, And that eroded my trust in educators that broke me so, so deeply. It scarred me in innumerable ways. But a part of that pain and a part of that disappointment and a part of that hurt, heartbreak, it allowed me 
to discover more. And I think that um, the first iteration of that more was me dropping out of high school. And I dropped out of high school in the ninth grade, two months shy of entering uh, high school. I was in one of the most premier high schools in the city based on high school. Uh, I was in special ed uh, all my life. So the mere fact that I could work so hard to get to a base at high school, which was um, an really elite school, our mayor, the mayor of the city of New York, Eric Adams, the speaker of the city of New York, Adrian Adams, both went to Bayside High School. So I, I reference and I share that because I want you to understand what type of a school we're talking about, okay? Um, if they can produce the speaker and the mayor, can you imagine what it could have produced through me? Right. It was diverse. It was different. I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly black and brown. So to go into a community that was predominantly white and affluent, uh, it was very different. And to experience uh, the distrust associated with the uh, sexual abuse that I had experienced, uh, complemented by a, a myriad of uh, disabilities, um, uh, as learning disabilities, um, that in itself and that feeling that I had the support at the school became overwhelming. Um, and I wound up dropping out of high school. And in dropping out of high school, I took the GED twice and I failed both. I failed both the, uh, the few points for math. Math was not my greatest subject. And I, <laughs> I think about it now, math, I hate math. But it's fine, because I got some people to help me. <laughs> uh, but I can, I, I, can do, I can do good math. But, um, but I am not, that wasn't my area of proficiency. So I failed twice. And moving forward, I um it was really discouraged, but I had an advocate from Advocate for Children. She was an education advocate. Her name was Erica Palmer. And Erica will reach out to me, uh, reach out to me and encourage me and try to connect me to the best programs possible uh, within the city of New York. I mean, she, you know, I would ignore her calls. I would not email because I was so embarrassed, Evangelist. I, I, I was so embarrassed. I, I was so, you know, here it is. I'm, I dropped out of high school. I, you know, here it is. I, I was in the newspaper. Here it is. I had all of this. I was well-respected in the community. I had elected officials who knew me. Here it is. I had all of these different things going for me, but I was still struggling, but no one can see it. You know, um, no one can see it. And so I share that experience to say, when I failed the GD twice, I did. I, I was determined to um, the support of other mentors, a litany of others, um, as well as, you know, Erica Palmer. I said, you know what, Jamel, you're going to take this GD again. And I failed again. Um, and from there, I began to become a bit more resourceful. I started mm -hmm. to do some research on my own and I found a program called Professional Business College. And interesting thing about that was 
it was a for-profit college that allowed you, if you commit to two semesters and you pass all the classes, you get 24 college credits and a GED. And I was committed to that process. And so I did that and I earned my GED. But I knew that the school wasn't really accredited with middle states accreditation that kind of, it was like a private college, so it had nonprofit accreditation. I wanted to go to another school that was more reparable. And so that I knew that can allow me to take my talents, my gifts, my education to, to the next place. And so they had a matriculation agreement with SUNY Empire State College. And from there, I was able to transfer to SUNY Empire State College. And I was able to pursue a BA in community and human services. Mm -hmm. From there, I, uh, I transferred directly out of that. And I went on to pursue a master of science uh, in community, I mean, a master of science in nonprofit leadership, but I want to back up first. I went and got a degree in community and human services because I wanted to understand the social, um, the, the social and economic and the health determinants that um, really affected um, low income and dis, you know, uh, uh, disinvested communities um, that often uh, found themselves in the crosshairs of the criminal justice system, <laughs> homeless system, um, you know, welfare system. And so a part of my desire to contribute was to pursue a BA in community criminal services. I knew that I wanted to pursue a master of science in nonprofit leadership degree because I knew that while, as I mentioned earlier, that my work was going to take on a new direction I knew that I needed to be prepared and I knew that I wanted to continue to lead a nonprofit, but I knew that I needed to be prepared to do so. And so I went on and I went to earn that degree to better prepare me to come back to my community more equipped uh, with the tools to be able to kind of engender the change that my heart so deeply desired. And as I was going through that program, I realized, you know, there was a important component um, that was missing, but that I felt I needed to better uh, give my all to this work. And that was looking at how communities are impacted as a result of policy and the policy decisions that affect the community, how how does that uh, kind of, in some sense of the way, play out in the everyday lives of those who are the beneficiaries of this quote unquote support? And in order to understand that, I needed to understand deeply how policy was reared. And so I went on to earn uh, a Master of Arts in, uh, in Social and Public Policy um, and then I wanted to understand how we can position, um, you know, uh, underserved communities to have a leg up um, in society around economic justice and economic mobility and social justice. And I felt that that could have been, could not be done any better than through social entrepreneurship. I think that social entrepreneurship provides the real capital um, from social capital 
to financial capital. Um, if positioned correctly, if, if the individual is positioned correctly and we have the support in place to support them, that is what's going to allow individuals for whom have come out of uh, extra, uh, um, different degrees of poverty to in some sense of the way find their, not only their place in the world, not only their purpose in the world, uh, but their unique contribution in the world. And oftentimes it is the, the autonomy of self-discovery when you can take the time to say, what are the issues that impact my community that I can address? Um, uh, in the way that I feel that my gifts, talents, and abilities will uh, facilitate. And often I found that is through the idea of entrepreneurship where individuals can take ownership of something, and particularly for youth in foster care, I think a degree of ownership, a degree of power, a degree of influence will help them not only find their worthiness, and not only uh, will it decrease the symptoms of, of abandonment and depression, but it would help them think about what life can look like. And so I wanted to educate myself. And so that's how my education culminated. Each one of them was building blocks to better prepare me for the work ahead to empower a community for whom have gifts, talents, and abilities, Lord have mercy, uh, that with the right influence and the supports necessary, they, they can, they can, and they will thrive. Um, it is about a belief system. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. is about a belief system. So as much as I share about personal justice with respect to my work and the decisions that I made to lead me to my work, I talk about personal justice in the context of education. A part of that was as much as it was for other people, it was also for me. It was a part of closure that I could provide me. It was a part of justice that I could give me. That was robbed from me. Huh. Yeah, that was robbed from me, Evangelos, when I was 15 years old, when I was drugged and raped by a teacher for whom I trusted. Um, and so the scars of that pain, uh, the residual consequences of the collateral consequences of that experience that caused me, I didn't attribute it so much to my time and caused on Rikers Island, but I will, because I would say at 15 years of age, just entering high school, boy, fragile, like, you know, uh, young and come with a litany of other uh, enormous challenges, but each step of the way, try to position myself to, to get ahead and, and to face this setback. Let me tell you what, uh, let me tell you the importance of high school. Most people think, okay, you know, high school is a, you know, um, is an opportunity for someone to, 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 to begin to grow up. But let me tell you what high school is. High school uh, engenders social capital. It helps young people as, uh, discover identity. It helps them to create formative relationships. It helps them uh, develop the, 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 the tools and the skills and the executive decision-making uh, that is so critical to help shape their trajectory in college to give them a more full life. Let me tell you what that area of uh, high school 
did for me, right? When it was robbed from me, it caused me to have gaps in my social development. It caused me to have uh, trepidations with respect to how I assimilate in society. It made me feel uncertain and question, you know, my, 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 how I show up in the world and, and what my real contribution was. Because four years, Evangelo. Four years had been robbed of me, but also it wasn't just the four years, it was also the 10 on top of it, and for which I stayed out of school before I returned back to earn those degrees. And so I did not know much of what most people would know uh, uh, to prepare them for college. I had to relearn some things. I had to, you know, some experiences was robbed from me, some memories, some, some milestones, my prom. And those are formative experiences that help young people create identity. And so while I am grateful for the college experience, it was important for me to go back to that fragile little boy uh, who was 15 years old, life ahead of him, newspaper articles, uh, leading in the community hoping elected officials become elected for whom some are elected to this day because of my uh, contributions. Um, yes, you would say, well, well, that's a lot to put on you one person. Well, I was well respected in the community. I had uh, the ears of uh, many politicians at a very young age. I had the controller coming to my events. I had the chief service officer of New York City coming to my events. I had uh, elected officials coming to my event. So here it is now. I uh, am in this experience where I'm robbed of so much. Yes, but, but, without, but, but, without, okay. but without those 10 years and without that, that horrible experience that you went through in high school, for which I know nothing about, meaning uh, there's no way I can come even close to understanding how it is to be uh, raped by someone, especially by someone who uh, you trust, uh, and being robbed of your identity and all the things that you described, you could, is it, is it though that uh, Jamel, that allowed you to become, to an extent, who you are today, uh, which is so you, someone who is so useful to so many people, because a person like you with your intellect, your ability, normally does not work in uh, the nonprofit world, et cetera. You know, they, they're usually self-interested. Um, but in your case, you're dedicating your whole life to helping other young people uh, transition from a type of life that you had into something better. Don't you think that Yes, you went through that trauma, uh, you were a martyr, but uh, that martyrdom actually allowed you to become who you are today, the man that you are today. Absolutely. It is the price you pay to, to cross the bridge. It's the toll you pay to cross the bridge, absolutely. You know, oftentimes in our lives, we can't explain the unexplainable but we can develop a sense of resolve and that is to the discovery and the acceptance of personal justice. You heard me talk about personal justice because 
personal justice is personal accountability. It allows you to reconcile what was beyond your control and to provide a sort of re, uh, redress uh, to some of the issues that you are traversing as a result of what you have experienced. And that was precisely it for me. It was the- Let's, let's try to understand, understand the concept of personal justice for a second. So when, when there's like the concept of justice, I guess, is that there is a there is a there's the right, right, and there's there's right and there's wrong, and uh, yes. there is somehow uh, someone who decides which is which, and hopefully you're on the side of the right, um, and if you're on the side of the wrong then you're gonna be penalized. If you're on the side of the right, uh, you'll be rewarded or whatever. How, how does, so, so how do we take that concept and apply it to personal? Like how, how what, is it, what does it mean, personal justice? Personal justice, as I mentioned, thank you. Personal justice, as I mentioned before, is personal accountability. It is the part that you play in giving yourself justice. Mm -hmm. uh, personal justice is a gift that you give to you that does not come from another. It does not come from God. It does not come from you, the, the universe. So it's, it's, it it's, about forgive, it's about forgiveness or what is Personal it? justice is about you. It's about you. Before you can get to forgiveness, it's about you. Personal justice is the justice you give you in whatever area. It could be self-care. It could be uh, it could be the idea that um, in this moment, I cannot control for me, personal justice. And it's funny, you know, in a report that I, I wrote, I wrote this one cent, uh, I wrote these two sentences. I said, I also want to take a moment of personal privilege to express how grateful I am to have survived the injustice of a failed and fraud foster care system for without which adverse experiences I have endured, though painful and heartbreaking, foster youth impact and this report would not exist. That report was right. around the idea around mental health and the disparities that exist with respect to youth and foster care. And so I want to, you to, to look at this in this context. I grew up in foster care and the experiences that I endured were an injustice to me. And it was all encountered in a failed and flawed foster care system for which I had no control over. But there comes a point in your life where you say, Jamel, you cannot control this. You cannot control that. You cannot control the other part, but what part can you control? And a part of my healing and a part of my personal justice, personal justice, the justice that I give me, which is personal to me, is that I cannot control how the system may have failed me, 
but a part of me paying it forward is a part of my personal justice because that part of me paying it forward allows for a degree of healing to take place. And while I cannot control the healing associated with the scars that I had endured, Mm -hmm. there is healing that I can control with regard to the work that I do to ensure that others don't experience that which I have. And that personal justice is demonstrated through taking ownership of that which I can. And that is, for me, in this instance, is the work of Foster Youth Impact, which is my not-for-profit organization, Mm -hmm. as well as the complementing agenda uh, of initiatives that I hope to uh, release in the foreseeable future. So that may be the policy report on mental health that works to improve solutions around emotional well-being for youth in foster care. That may also be uh, a social entrepreneurship platform. It also may be uh, advocacy around ensuring that uh, youth in foster care are able to uh, receive adequate support with regard to um, uh, employment opportunity. So it is looking at the issues within your life, within your control, and how in some way you can give your own self-justice in areas that for which oftentimes we look from, from others, be it a system, an individual, uh, otherwise. That is the mm-hmm. essence of personal justice. It is personal accountability in that you have something left. You have something to contribute. And inheriting that is a part of healing that will be discovered that that the acceptance of personal justice. That's why I said the acceptance of personal justice. You have to accept that there's a part that you have to play. Okay, you've been wrong, you've been this, but personal justice is the justice. If nobody gives you justice, it's the justice you give you. And Mm -hmm. that is personal justice. And that we have a responsibility to. It's interesting. There are some people who feel that they can reach the point of, I guess, uh, healing their psyches after long-term traumas through revenge. Um, of course, you took the complete opposite approach. Do you feel this is revenge? This, this is, is revenge. revenge. Interesting. Yeah. In what, in uh, what uh, way? Uh, what way is it revenge? Oh God, it's revenge. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's revenge in my conversation. It's revenge in. Uh, let me tell you. Uh, if I look at it in the context, thanks, Evangelos. Come on, let's get controversial. I'm happy to share. Uh, yeah, no, be provocative. I'm happy. Yeah, it is revenge. In what way? It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's in, revenge. In, in a way, I guess. I guess you mean. You mean. I guess you mean that it's revenge. Meaning that uh, you, uh, the greatest revenge is by living well. Is that is that the concept? No, no, not at all. Far. Uh, revenge in this in this context, I would say, 
is that for many years, I would hear this one thing, mm -hmm. uh, at which we, in most instances, a lot of individuals, it's an unconscious bias, though they don't recognize it. Mm -hmm. uh, when young person is telling you they're struggling, they're going through traumatic experiences, and you tell them to get their education. Mm -hmm. Oh, you got to go to school. And so we discount everything else. And we tell young people, all right, go to school. Uh -huh. You tell them, oh, go to school. And I, I remember when I was in foster care, they used to say the same thing to me. Oh, go to school. Um, you know, if you go to school, you know, yeah, somehow it's this mystery that if you go to school, that somehow uh, your life is going to become better. And in many ways it does. I, I, I'm a proponent of education and I encourage individuals to get it. But I will tell you that let's not discount uh-huh that's not discount uh the per, the individual's trauma uh it, to substitute it for education education is not going to resolve their trauma let's acknowledge let's walk and chew gum at the same time and a part of the revenge is that it allows me to do uh, ascertaining that education that so many people uh you know uh, in, assess toward whether the, uh, toward the success um, or, you know, subscribe toward, uh, or ascribe, I stand correctly, ascribe toward the success of an individual uh, in the, okay, if we get their education, that, that they will be okay. Let, let me just be very clear. Um, you won't. Um, education alone won't make you whole. Uh, and that while it is a part of uh, a process that helps develop who you are and to become, um, it still leaves void. And I think that a part of, you know, achieving a degree, some, some, you know, some level of education and some sense of the way that is received uh, more broadly, um, allows me to introduce conversations that ultimately, you know, perhaps would not have um, been had around some real understanding around how charmer affects everything from education on down. Uh, it also allows me to introduce a degree of uh, uh, innovation, you know, in terms of just my thought process perspective that helps shape who I am. And I think that that's, I think that revenge in this context is my personal justice. It is a justice that I give me, but it's also a tool by which I hold the system accountable in real time. I am now positioned more than I have ever been, not just because of education, but because of who I know I am to really help and in, in many ways disrupt this and dismantle the status quo uh, with respect to uh, youth and foster care. And I think that revenge is a part of your work um, and that while it, the negative connotation that may be associated with the word revenge uh, may oftentimes appear controversial. It is the essence of righting wrongs that I um, take from that idea. But it is a, I, I do find that uh, in my sharing that there are times is that uh, my tonality and my disposition and my cadence and my elocution and my will all shift depending on you know the um the conversation that I'm having who I'm having it with um 
and it requires and it summons is that part of you um, that uh, in some sense of the way is on its journey to being healed. Um, and I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary. Um, I think it's jarring at times, but it's it causes people to examine the work they do and to question that work and to interrogate that work um, as it relates to youth and foster care. I think the concept of revenge, and I, I need to find another way, uh, another way, but it's powerful. Mm -hmm. It will lead you, it will challenge you, it will um, help you uh, discover your unique contribution. Because I think that in this context, in this work, the idea of revenge is the idea that uh, for once, um, I not only understand who I am, but I'm going to help rescue the others who are trying to find who they are before a system uh, that uh, is uh, before a system that is so systemically flawed. Yeah, so it's um, a you're, you're, you're referring opportunity. So you're so so what you're describing is a type of constructive. Revenge. And when I say that opportunity, one second. When I say opportunity, I say the opportunity of contribution. Right. The opportunity to give back, the opportunity to uh, to to have peace, and th th that's what I talk about when I talk about the you know opportunity, and, and and it's not just related to this idea of their development, but it's just this idea related to the their inherent um, ability that they would be able to discover uh, unencumbered by the trauma of their past uh, and any pain that may be associated with it. And I, I think that those who have been afforded the opportunity to rise in many ways above this have a responsibility because I think that they're more equipped, but we also have to be careful with assessing responsibility also to individuals who have experienced trauma uh, without ensuring that we create a pathway for them to, in some sense of the way, heal. Um, and so for me, I took healing in my, I, I took healing, here it is, I'm 34, uh, Evangelist. I transitioned out of foster care when I was 22. The issues still follow me to this day. Um, some of the same challenges and trepidations, same fears and some same anxieties. And so a part of my revenge is personal justice. I, that, that's how I could, be, be, you know, my revenge is personal justice, but it's a, it's a, it's a right to healing. It's a pathway to healing uh, through paying it forward. Right. Um, so I'm gonna start, I'm gonna stop there, but I wanted to provide a full understanding of the idea both of personal justice and how revenge plays a part in the concept of personal justice and how, in some sense, of way they can be used interchangeably um, in other in many ways. Yeah. So, so when because you talk I, about again, when you talk about when you talk about re re when you talk about revenge is basically 
you saying that I've been beaten down, I've been uh, uh, victimized, but I'm not gonna accept uh, this is not okay. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to take revenge on the system that's, uh, you know, allowed this to happen to me. And I'm going to make sure that uh, others don't fall victims to the same uh, flawed system. What you're describing is uh, as revenge is kind of, let's call it constructive revenge. Of course, there's the other side, which is catastrophic revenge for the, the same person as you could actually say, I'm going to destroy the system in a different way. I'm gonna get a gun. I'm going to explode a couple of bombs. I'm going to rob uh, this person, that person. You know, I'm going to kill people. You know, you could argue that uh, uh, maybe they're both fueled by intense anger, but uh, somehow the way, the, the, somehow the outlets are different. Mm -hmm. Like there's the catastrophic side of revenge and that maybe what you're describing is the constructive side. Absolutely. It is. It is. It is. That's correct. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I'd like to talk about um, you, like, uh, let's see, like when, where would Jamel Robinson be today had he not been born in the environment where he was born uh, of, you know, had he not been born by a mother who was a, using drugs uh, and by an, you know, in a, in a household of a single mom who abandoned him, he had to uh, spend his whole life in foster care homes, et cetera. What, what would uh, you be, you feel, had you been born in an affluent home, uh, a comfortable home, a tight household? Have you thought about that? Many times, but what I will say is while my biological mother, I had substance use challenges. I, I never, while I continue to navigate the complexities of the effects associated with uh, the substance use. Mm -hmm. I never held it over her. Um, so I never you still keep a, you keep in touch with her. You you still have relationships with her. You a relationship with her. I mean, I currently do not have a consistent relationship with her. Um, at this particular time, and she is navigating her life, trying to um, essentially uh, position herself in a way in which she could, um, or she feels comfortable reaching out. And I totally uh, respect and honor that process. But for me, I never really, I, while I may have experienced abandonment, um, issues, I never felt abandoned by her. Um, I think that the gift that God really afforded me was that at the age of 15 years old, through the exposure of mentors and community and under, and being just reared in that particular environment that helped me um, mature quicker. Um, and in so doing, I 
began to understand some of the other challenges associated with how this could come to being within the community and the time in which we were living in. So I was able to reconcile all of that. So I don't feel abandoned. I don't feel neglected. I don't feel, uh, you know, in any way. Um, Great, but had, had you had you been had you been born had you been born in an affluent household? In spite in spite of your forgiveness, you know, your mom uh, put you in oh, a yes. position, you know, that, in that position. I would have been a lawyer. I would have been a lawyer. I would have. I but I I don't know. Uh, I want to be fair. I don't know because a result of being in the criminal justice, a, a result of being in foster care is how I, for me, discovered what I wanted to do at 15 years of age. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be an attorney. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to become a family court attorney. Uh, subsequently, I wanted to become a family court judge. And then a state supreme court justice. That was my trajectory. Yeah. So right now I'll be a state Supreme Court justice probably, but no, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, Evangelist, and that's what I say for many people. Um, and yeah. this is why this conversation is so good. Believe it or not, you will not even begin to really fully unpack all of this um, and how, how it will uh, provide in many ways, um, not only understanding, but really uh, this, uh, in some way, helping others discover their own sense of personal justice, because the truth of the matter is, for which, as I mentioned earlier in, in, in my uh, sharing around that statement that I included in my policy report around mental health, that for without adverse experiences I have endured uh, in foster care, though painful and heartbreaking, my existence with respect to this work would not exist. I wouldn't know nothing about foster care. And so all my contributions, I often tell people this, it, it's, it's controversial as it may seem, uh, as it may seem, I always say for me, how I reconciled it for me in my faith is that I say, you know, um, if you know, you have to pay a price. You have to pay a toll across the bridge and a part of life, um, it presents tolls that some for which we can expect and others we don't, um, depending on which road we travel. And so for me, um, if I did not have the experience of foster care, I would not become, want to become a family law attorney and I would not want to become a family court judge and I would certainly would not probably want to become a state Supreme Court justice. So I think it is inherent in our lived experience, this idea that um, some things are discovered uh, and some things are inherent. So I, I you know, um, for me, my passion was discovered uh, through my lived experience for which without, I would not, I have, and so I am extraordinarily grateful. And if I, if I would say so myself, if I had to go back and think it all over, I would have probably lived a boring life, a boring life, and I would not have been as well, well rounded. My contributions would not be as such. And I think about it in this way. I often tell people, if you, you know, if you can't go through anything. Um, then you should give God back the blessings that he blessed you with because oftentimes what you're blessed with is a consequence of what you went through. I think about people all the time, give them back the book, 
Give God back the book. Give them back uh, the speaking engagements. Give them back uh, the, the opportunities that help facilitate. Because I think oftentimes it is our lived experience and the trauma that was associated and accessed to our lives to help us develop and to go through our process. And I think that a part of paying your dues is being a good steward over that which you have been entrusted to your care. Should it be pain? Be a good steward over it. I am. I'm doing it through personal justice. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's heartbreak, be a good steward over it. What did you learn from it? Mm -hmm. if, it be, uh, if it be disappointment, how could you help uh, ensure that others are not as disappointed? What can you do with the, the life for which you have been given to find some uh, degree of solace uh, in your service? And for me, I have reconciled it as just that, for which my spirituality would have not been reared, for which my education uh, would not be uh, the same, for which uh, I, the aspirations that I have and the contributions that I have made and will continue to make will not be, had not I had uh, the set of experiences that I have had. And a part of giving myself personal justice is the acceptance that what I could not control uh, uh, is okay. Uh, because where I am is better than where I once was, and I am more equipped because of it. And I am positioned with an, a, a degree of empathy and compassion and sympathy and understanding that will engender a life uh, made full proof of the not only the lived experiences, but the fulfillment of possibility and promise through those experiences that not just touches my life, which again is personal justice, but that extends to others as a consequence of those experiences. Foster Youth Impact, uh, your organization. Let's talk about the vision here. If, uh, if your organization is an extension of you, boy, you know, <laughs> there's a lot to talk about. Um, but what's your vision of it uh, for sure. the future, for the near future, for the extended future? Fantastic. Based in Harlem, New York City, and co-driven by those with lived experiences, FYI really uh, is on the frontier of tackling some of the most stubborn challenges that impede inequity that um, that um, and the potential of foster youth and alumni. So we work to really dis, uh, employ a social justice lens to cross-sector collaboration to co create more equitable and innovative solutions that reimagine and advance foster youth wellness opportunity and success. The first iteration of our work through our relaunch of the organization will focus on mental health. And this month, I will be releasing a report uh, in which I comprise, uh, which is a policy memorandum, Mental Health Health Equity Solutions for New York City Foster Youth. And the idea is to move beyond the conversation to action to enhance mental health equity, access and support uh, post COVID-19 and beyond. And 
so our first iteration will look at how we can improve mental health outcomes and the complementing supports. Um, mental health outcomes of youth and foster care and how we could provide the complementing supports that help facilitate emotional well-being. Um, so my first work is going to look at mental health uh, in a way that really not just addresses the long-standing issues with regard to connecting you uh, to mental health support, but what are the other contributing factors that can help young people um, discover emotional wellness. So I think about gym memberships. I think about uh, I think about bicycling. I think about connection to faith-based institutions. I think about how young people and we are the research and we are the intersectionality between the research and the lived experience of youth and the absence of social capital, how can we help young people uh, become and live a more whole lifestyle outside of the uh, the uh, the standard mental health treatment of, you know, you know, maybe uh, medication or other supports. So my, the work of Foster's Impact uh, in its first quarter uh, of its relaunch for which we'll, the organization will relaunch next week uh, will be focused on mental health. And so through the release of this policy report, that's one uh, primary focus. Uh, and then the second part of that is helping other cities within the uh, surrounding areas really work to adopt some of the recommendations on improving foster youth well-being. So it's the policy report, the sign, the pledge, and we're looking at other initiatives that will follow that from a, uh, that would include a forum uh, on mental health that uh, related to youth and foster care. Um, and from there, we have a host of other initiatives that uh, range from uh, support of housing to uh, criminal justice rehabilitation, looking at um, just a myriad of issues that really affect youth in foster care. And so my primary uh, focus initially was to look at how young people are faring with regard to the emotional health um, while in foster care. And we don't have enough data that points to how young people are um, encountering the system and how they're uh, working through some of their challenges um, around trauma. Um, and so for so long, uh, mental health in the foster care community have been really under addressed up to 80% of youth in foster care suffer from a significant mental health issue. One in five are expected to graduate from high school. 25% uh, 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 two years after emancipation from foster care into the criminal justice system, up to 80%, uh, uh, up to 82% of young people who have 
been in foster care have experienced the criminal justice system. So when we think about homelessness, one in four will become homeless. Um, you know, we we start to look at all of these different uh, uh, experiences that young people go through as a result of under-addressed or untreated mental health um, uh, issues. And so while young people uh, who are in foster care are not mentally ill, they suffer from a significant mental health issue. It could be depression, it could be, you know, uh, it just means that they are dealing with challenges just like everyone else, but that need additional support given the pre-existing trauma they experienced um, that led them to encountering the foster care system in the first place. Good question. So um, the organization was founded in 2016. You said that it's being relaunched right now. Uh, was there an interruption at some point? What happened? Sure. So I founded the organization um, in as a list of several recommendations in 2008. Uh, oh. In 2012, we formalized, we established as a 501c3 organization, understanding that the inequities were ever present. Um, and from that point, our early work, as I mentioned earlier, began in civic engagement, criminal justice, rehabilitation, and foster care awareness, parent, foster parent and adoption recruitment initiatives. And so we've been doing uh, that, that work up until I wanna say about 2016. And I knew that the work was going to go in it. I knew that my work with respect to foster parent and adoption recruitment um, was completed for me. Um, I think that my particular assignment with regard to that was to raise awareness uh, to the need for good foster and adoptive families for teens in foster care. For when I came out of uh, the criminal, uh, Rikers Island, I wound up sleeping on trains and buses for a period of time. And I didn't have a steady, you know, a foster and or adoptive family that was able to take or were willing to take me in because at that time the older child what you know was uh the more difficult it was to identify a placement that was willing to take in a young person who for many people thought was already reared um so they they're already set in their ways and so they were deemed in some sense of the way unlovable so a part of my work in uh, um my latter work with respect to uh the organization was foster parent and adoption recruitment because I said, um, what, what type of life will a young person have if they were able to just have that sense of stability? And so my idea was to, to set a precedent um, that good families, good foster and adoptive families, because we started to see so much at that particular time. People would go from foster home to foster home. Uh, one more dysfunction than the next. Like I explained about my experience. And for me, I was seeing too many young people who were, you know, teenagers who were just falling through the cracks. And so what this campaign did was it was the first youth-led campaign of its kind in the history of New York City um, designed to raise awareness to recruit good foster and adoptive families 
uh, for adolescents in care. And that was through our campaign called We Deserve Love Too. But there was another organization that was doing extraordinary work um, called You Gotta Believe. And then, so it was You Gotta Believe. And then I was able to, um, I came later, um, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that You Gotta Believe was really in existence. And then I was, as I was in the midst of the campaign, I learned of their work. And I started to, um, as I was, you know, doing, you know, the campaign, um, it, it began to create an in increased awareness around, uh, around this issue. Um, and I felt at that particular time as awareness began to come, I, one, I didn't have the resources to continue to do the recruitment and surely I could have raised the money and surely I could have did that. But I just felt like my assignment had been completed. I raised a considerable amount of awareness. I brought the attention to the, the city. The city started to take actions and to launch campaigns that really were reflective of older youth in foster care. So I felt in, in, in many ways that my work was done. I did not know where my work would go moving forward, but I knew one thing, I was not going to be raising money just to be raising money, um, that I needed to have clarity on what was next. And what I did not realize was that I slipped into a depression. Um, mm -hmm. And that depression robbed me of five years of clarity. That's ironic um, considering that you're fighting against uh, mental health uh, you're, you're trying Chats. to improve mental health issues for, for people and you slipped in a depression. Absolutely, which was a part and, and inspired, which in fact inspired the report. I would never forget, I was on the phone with a funder one day, I was on the phone with Rita Sornin from the Dave Thomas Foundation for, the Adop for Adoption. And I was talking to her with, about an unrelated issue. It was really about the campaign and she told me, she said, Jamel, you're going to do great things. You mm -hmm. have done great things, but promise me this. Promise me uh, that you will take care of yourself. I did not know what Rita was talking about. Uh, what I did not know then that I do know now is taking care of myself extended to mental health. Mm -hmm. And what, she, what Rita knew that I did not know was that Although the work was well-intentioned and it will have an impact, she knew I wasn't healed. And she knew that, the, that revisiting trauma, unresolved trauma, she understood the effects that it could have on me. And, so and by, so by, by dealing with, with the same issues that you dealt as a child, basically you constantly revisited the same trauma and that, that took a yeah. Same trauma, absolutely, absolutely. And her idea was that, you know, Jamel, uh, I want you to take care of yourself. I didn't know what she was saying. It didn't take, it didn't compute at the time. It took about three years from that day that I began to realize all that she was saying um, because I slipped into a depression that robbed me of my ability to focus. It allowed me of my ability to really be able to do, um, to, to, to 
discover clarity. I, I just, I, everything was a blur. Uh, and I would find myself in bed days after days. Um, I would find myself uh, experiencing substance use. Uh, I was... Substance is in the, and is in the, is in the substance use like um, to, to make you like downers, things to, to calm you down or uppers? Oh, substance use to help me uh, navigate my pain. Uh -huh. I wanted to know my pain. Hell, I was going through so damn much in life at that time that I just wanted to numb what I was experiencing. I didn't have the words, I didn't have the energy, I didn't have the resources. And while mentorship was great, it, it didn't provide what I needed emotionally, mentally. Does this fucking pain ever end, Jamal? No, the pain doesn't end. The pain does not end. Uh, I would say it gets better. It gets does better because you achieve. Yes, 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 yes. Because as as I want to say, fuck that. Like, forgive me. Um, okay. But as it may be, I really can't, and I may take that back. I would want to say after, but I would say now would I was allowed to go through. You know, and I, I say allowed to go through, and then, you know, I guess for me, my faith, you know, relies on something deeper. But I think that that's where we discover faith in, in broken moments. Um, and, and for some people that, you know, they're agnostic, they, they're atheists, and, and I could appreciate all of that. And I love them, you know, I have, you know, folk. But for me, I, I needed something to, to, you know, and through constant, constant going through um, different experiences for me, relying on my faith was the only way because that's where I did see reprieve. Um, faith in um, God, faith in God, yeah, faith in God for me, that was my redress because I think that it allowed me to develop a sense and, and if nothing more, a system of uh greater reliance that you know, for me, I didn't. You know, I, I say this, you know, um, but I didn't even have parents. So it wasn't like, you know, uh, and when I say that, I mean, parents that was particularly there that provided that sense of structure, that, that sense of whatever. And so I, you know, and for me, so I, you know, at that particular time in my life, so from 15 years onward, I, you know, I've basically been on my own. So it was me and God. And though I have had mentors and other people that have come along the way and for which I'm enormously grateful for, I have to rely um, on the idea that a uh, faith and that not only that, I can re I reconcile my faith with the idea around the process mm -hmm. um, that I went through. And so, and it makes perfect sense to me, you know? Um, it makes perfect sense. Cause you would say, well, for many, they would say, well, well why would God allow you to go through this? Um, you know, you know uh, I, I would say, because you can be trusted with it. Uh, because 
indicative of that trust is what I have done with what I have been through. And which proves to me that it is trust. It is that if I, that if you go through this, that it, what would you do with it? And I, for me, I could say, oh, perhaps I would come out and be a good citizen had I not gone through these experiences, but look at all that I have, whatever. I, if I look at anything, though I, I believe that it was allowed by, you know, God, I would say that the system, I think that uh, there is something to be said about the system and how it further perpetuates the harms that it attempts to protect youth from that a part of my frustration, if there is any, will come from. Not so much what I had been allowed to go through. Um, and the only reason why I say allowed is because certainly I would not be, I mean, and this is not a message on faith. This is a message on personal justice <laughs> oh. um, and how faith will allow you to discover your personal justice if you allow it to. Um, because whether we say faith in the context of God or faith in the context of oneself, it's faith nonetheless. And I, so when I think of it, I think about the system. I think about the system and the inherent flaws within a system that doesn't allow you in many ways to process your experience. Yep. So those experiences may have been allowed by God, looking at it from a, maybe a spiritual perspective or a spiritual lens. Um, when I get to a system, how does that system nurture the part that they have been trusted or entrusted with? And that part is my development. You know, my faith led me to the idea and the understanding that this is a part of my journey, but in experiencing this journey, when I encounter a system, how then can that system help facilitate a better outcome for me than I would have had prior to entering into the system. And that is on them. But what's on me, Evangelos, mm -hmm. is the idea that you have something left to contribute. And that is where one must exercise personal justice. Your personal justice may not be my personal justice, but
But you have a responsibility, Evangelo, even you. Even you. Yep. To personal justice. You have a responsibility to personal justice, your own personal justice. For me, the set of circumstances that facilitated my interaction with the foster care system and those experiences after encountering that system, that for me, though in many ways have been painful and disappointing, it's an opportunity for con either in your words, constructive revenge, or in my words, personal justice. But personal justice inherently is a form of contribution. And in many ways, depending on the individual and to the degree in which they were healed, they will classify it either as revenge or just that, what I classify it as, which is personal justice.